all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to Nick Arambula, who is the founder and CEO of Neighbor, which is a direct to consumer outdoor furniture company. Um, you know, he is uh, definitely a man that knows this business. Uh, he was one of the early executives at Phoenix Darling Tough to Needle, which was a bootstrap direct-to-consumer mattress company, um, one of the first, and they sold to Serta Simmons, I believe. Um, Serta's bankrupt, right. aren't they? They are. That wasn't a positive outcome for most of us, but it was a good learning experience. At least that's how I post-rationalize it. Did you Did you roll? Uh, I rolled some, yeah. Yeah. F- fuck them. You'll get them on this one. <laughs> It is what it is, man. I mean, it was the, the t- what we built at TNN and specifically what JT and Dahi started was very special, uh, wonderful group of people. And I was lucky enough to meet my two co-founders that I started Neighbor with at Tuft and Needle. So, um, and we have other people that we've hired from TNN at Neighbor now. So it, it's it's a it's a positive outcome, I think, on the margin. Uh, just not a great financial outcome from what we expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could have been worse if you raised money too, right? So I mean, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, the people that owned a lot owned a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. So you pivoted, or not pivoted, but you evolved your skill set and decided to attack the furniture business, the outdoor furniture business. So why go there? Yeah, I think you know the the first kind of impetus to do something was really just that Mike, Chris, and I so. Mike Fredo, Chris Lee, two co-founders um, at Neighbor. Mike was head of product experience most recently at Tough to Needle, and Chris was head of supply chain most recently at Tough to Needle. The three of us gravitated towards each other, just I would say out of a natural interest to do something entrepreneurial. And I think what was super unique about Tough to Needle is that the in, kind of the entire employee base was entrepreneurial by nature. You know, there were plenty of people that had side hustles, whether it was like a floral business on the side or a book editing business on the side. Uh, or we had one team member that made like these incredible, I would say, pastries and desserts, and she would drop them off in boxes to people's homes for a little side hustle. It was just an entrepreneurial environment. Um, and so the three of us knew we wanted to try something together. We weren't necessarily certain on what industry it was. And so we spent a lot of time analyzing a few different ideas. And um, what ultimately brought us to outdoor furniture was really three things, I would say, um, two that are quite specific to us, and then one that was more industry focused. And so the ones that were specific to us is like, and this is, you know, obviously probably pretty self-explanatory. We had a great deal of experience shipping big, bulky items that people were used to buying in a retail setting to their front door, right? Mm-hmm. Tough to Needle taught us that. Um, we felt like we had a good grasp on how to do that from an operational perspective, how to serve those customers from a customer experience perspective, Um, And then also how to work through, I would say, the nuance of making folks comfortable about spending $4,000 online sight unseen. 
So that was kind of, I would say, point one. Second was that Tuft & Needle as a business was very focused on the visual representation of the brand, our voice and tone, and all things brand related. In addition to that, we cared a ton about product design. And that went into the way the product felt, how it performed, and ultimately the sleep that it gave to customers. But the interesting thing about that product is that 99% of the time it was covered. And so even if we felt we had done interesting things from a visual perspective with the product, we never really got credit for that because it was generally covered. And it's not like you know when you're showing off a new product that you've purchased, you take folks into your bedroom and say, hey, let me show you this thing that I just got. So with outdoor furniture, we actually... Yeah, maybe maybe you do. Maybe you do. I mean, so you're in the, you're in the weird one percent that was driving a great deal of friends and family referral for us. Yeah, yeah. That's, why I, that's why I freak people out. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're really eccentric, right? That, Most people right. aren't like that, dude. So we appreciate that you probably helped facilitate some of the sales. But with us, you know, we thought now we can go build a product that we're going to get credit for visually. You know, hopefully it becomes a statement piece in folks' homes or it's a gathering spot where, you know, acquaintance would say, hey, this is great. Where'd you get this from? And so we really liked the idea to, to take all the things that we learned about product development, visual product design, and just our own, I would say, uh, design agenda and I design idea of what we could do for the outdoor space and and tackle that product line. So that was point two. And then the final one was we were really attracted to the outdoor furniture industry because the way it was built and the way that it has historically operated. It is a barbell industry with a bunch of low cost, low quality product at one end. And at the other end, there's really, really, really high product, high cost product, beautiful design, incredible materials, but it's just unattainable price points. I mean, we're talking like $25,000 for an outdoor dining set. Most people aren't spending the cost of a car for their outdoor dining collection. And so for us, we're like, here is a barbelled market that is incredibly fragmented, which is very similar to the mattress industry. How can we try to build a brand in the space at a, I would say, an accessible luxury price point? So sitting a little bit above what I would say are kind of like the well-known mid-tier retail brands like West Elm, Pottery Barn. We're just a little bit premium to them in price point, but we believe that we're including materials and design that is more akin to what you would see at a Restoration Hardware or Gloucester, which are two really wonderful companies that build beautiful outdoor furniture. Yeah. Whenever I see furniture, um, even if it's at Pottery Barn, you know, I look at the sticker and I, I literally just want to throw up. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's so yeah. expensive. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that was one of the tough to needles, big, um, you know, I would say value drivers is that there was just all this hidden margin that was, that was, you know, involved based on the, the essential, the business model, the distributors, the retailers. Is there yep. a, a similar value capture here in furniture? I think there is for sure. I mean, when you when you juxtapose our price points against some of the stuff that you're seeing at Restoration Hardware, uh, or more importantly, if you go to what I would say are like bespoke retailers that are selling brands, yes, I, I know for sure that we're eroding, I shouldn't say eroding, but we're removing some of that unnecessary price point uh, that, that just comes when you have a heavy distributor model. That being said, um, we, I, I don't want to say that we're the most affordable group on the street. We're not. I mean, a sofa of ours starts at about $2,900 and can escalate as high as $6,900. So it's not an inexpensive piece of furniture. 
But I think the main nuance, and you just you know said something that I think is a, a nice segue for me to tell a good anecdotal story about even long before we started Neighbor. But I, I remember when my wife and I bought our first house, we moved back to Phoenix in 2016, we were looking at outdoor furniture and I had the same reaction that you did. I'm like, this thing from Pottery Barn is, is how much? And I said, wait, that doesn't even include the cushions. So now we got to spend double what we thought it was going to be. And back then I went to Chris when we were still, you know, early in our, I would say tenure at Tina. And I was like, Hey, can we get one of our suppliers just to cut me some foam that fits these dimensional specs? He's like, yeah, for sure. They'll do that. And so I did that. And then I just found someone locally to sew me cushion covers. And I probably saved, I don't know, 65% of what I would have paid for the cushion product from Pottery Barn. And that, that was, that was as far back, David, as like 20, early 2017. And I think that was like sign number one that, Hey, there's probably something to be done in this space that can bring costs down to customers. And so, yeah, I would say a couple things that you mentioned. Like, if you go into Pottery Barn, most of the time they're using eucalyptus wood or acacia, which are just not the same degree of quality durability as teak, which is the only wood material species that we use right now in any of our wood product. And so, we don't sell for that much of a premium to Pottery Barn stuff, but the material that we're using is significantly nicer. And so, I would say there's there's the value capture being done there. But we were pretty committed to building product with really great materials in it, which means that there are moments where we just have to sell it for a more premium price point. And that's, it's not because we're trying to, you know, extract a bunch from our customers, but we're trying to build a, a reasonably sound business model um, where we're getting the value for the product that we're building. Which is hard. I mean, that's a harder, that's a harder nut to crack, I would think, from a for positioning sure. standpoint, because you're not saying that we're going to give you a cheaper mattress and you can buy it online. You don't need to go, right? Right. Um, but you know, you're we're, you're saying we're going to create a, a middle category, and you can buy it online. So I mean, for sure, probably a, a different type of value proposition and something harder. You're dealing with designs. Uh, I know there's probably were a couple skews with tough to needle, but probably not nearly as the complexity from a manufacturing perspective as as this furniture. Yeah. No, not. I mean, our, our manufacturing complexity is probably tenfold what we dealt with at Tough to Needle. So that certainly has been a, you know, an interesting learning curve for us to be on together just because fulfillment is a little bit harder. Um, you know, defect issues are a little bit more harder and then even just designing it, I think has more nuanced challenge in it. So that, that part has been challenging, but we definitely have brought over certain, I would say certain of the like thematical elements that were common at TNN. We don't sell a ton of different SKUs. Our collections are generally modular and we're trying to build things that have what I would say are like a modern aesthetic, but have staying power. You know, we're not interested in selling a collection for two years and then just kind of shelving it or potentially just selling the inventory down because we don't believe it's in style anymore. So it's not fast furniture, which is what you do see a lot of brands doing today. Um, but yeah, th- those are those are things that I think we have brought from us with our time at TNN, uh, but certainly different challenges. Now, one thing I will say that's been really interesting is at Tough to Needle, our average order value is probably like six or seven hundred bucks. Here, it's closer to four thousand. So when you think about acquiring a customer, you know we have call it five and a half, six times more to try try to acquire our customer to be like on the same percentage of spend relative to revenue and and marketing. 
but it also allows us to be just a much leaner team. There's only nine of us and, you know, we've been able to scale to, you know, call it 10 million bucks with a small team. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, obviously there's enough margin there to pay the CAC. What are you learning from, um, from a channel perspective and, and kind of like a distribution perspective? Uh, what's yeah. paying, what's not paying? Like, do you see a, a, a world where you're doing retail, Amazon? How do you think about all that? Yeah, of course. Happy to talk about that. Um, I mean, I, I think that Mike, Chris, and I definitely agreed early on that some form of distribution with the right partners that understood what we were trying to do was something that we wanted to achieve. And so six months into starting the business, we were on crateandbarrel.com and we still are today. You know, they're an incredibly important distribution partner. They aren't a sizable percentage of our overall revenue. I mean, 85 plus percent of our revenue comes from our owned website, but we do partner with Crate, with All Modern, with Wayfair, and with Huckberry. And Huckberry is like a bespoke men's retailer. If you haven't heard of it, it's a cool, it's a cool company. You should check them out. They have a lot of really good curated product. Uh, but we believe that distribution is essential for us to some degree, right? I don't want to be in a world where 50 plus percent of our revenue is coming from other retail partners, because I think you do lose a little bit of control over your brand and how you articulate who you are to people. Um, but those channels that we are working with, you know, they're, they're efficient for us because Crate and Barrel is significantly more recognizable than Neighbor is as a brand. But we have our branded product on their website. It's not white labeled. So we're getting credit for Neighbor. And I think it's helping to propel who we are as a business. And Crate and Barrel is a great co-sign to have to say, hey, we believe enough in this product and think the design is solid that we want to carry it. Um, so those channels have been good and helpful to us, but the lion's share of where we're generating revenue is through our owned website. And we've relied pretty, I would say singularly on like digital spend to get to where we are today. A lot on Meta, a lot on Google. We've done some tests with uh, direct mail and I think with with kind of mixed results, some some of the tests have been better than others. And then the other thing that has become very common in, in the online shopping space is just affiliate marketing. I mean, earned media is effectively over now. And it's like, who are you doing an affiliate program with? And how is that generating leads for you? So I'm not sure if that answers your question about like channels. I mean, there's the distribution component, but then there's like, how are we generating sales too, just through our own mechanism of going out and bringing people on to who, you know, to our website and then getting them comfortable with making a purchase. Yeah. Well, I mean, would Amazon do something like that? With you, uh, we've been—I mean, we've been contacted by them, and I think they're in—you know—ingoing assumption is to get as many products as you can on their platform. We worked very closely with Amazon at Tuft and Needle. I'm just—I—I I don't know if maybe I'm being too short-sighted, but I don't know too many people that are spending four thousand dollars for a purchase on Amazon. So it's been, I would say, kind of lower on our list of priorities to get things loaded onto Amazon, but. You know, at the same time, when you look at like 40 plus percent of uh, searches on the internet for retail products start on Amazon, we probably are going to need to be there at some point to help just raise awareness around the brand. And we are working on some products that will sell at a much, much, much lower average order value and re just retail price point that, that aren't even furniture components. Like we're working on an outdoor light that will probably launch by the end of the summer. And it'll be like 195 bucks, so much more 
applicable price, I would say palatable price point, probably be a good product for Amazon and could be an introduction to the brand for a lot of folks that maybe aren't ready to make that first furniture purchase. Yeah, I think that's right. So if I was to probably, you know, do a lot of, you know, analyzing of the space, I'd like pull a market report and I would say, okay, this is the outdoor furniture market, or this is the furniture market, this is the outdoor furniture market segmentation. And then I would probably see main modes of distribution would be essentially retail. So partnering mm-hmm. with these retail, big box retail would, would make a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then, then moving out of that would require, you know, a lift, but you know, you're either going to pay Zuck or you're going to pay the, the partner. You're going to have to, yeah, that's right. You're gonna that's right. That. Yeah. You're going to have to pay somebody right to get that's that. That's absolutely um, right. You know, it was funny talking to, um, I was talking to, uh, Sergio, um, over at diaper, uh, about, okay. you know, he has the sustainable diaper brand and this is CPG. Yeah you know, huge market, you know, very, you know, very, very much a commodity. You're dealing with Procter and Gamble, you know, yep. Johnson yep. and Johnson as competitors. But, you know, he was just saying, you know, at the end of the day, like, if you're not, if you're not in retail, you're a hobby, right? In the diaper business, you know, just because sure. just the sure. sure volume that goes through that. And like, you just eventually have to play it, right? Like, there's only so much, you know, cute things you can do about how, how much, how expensive you are. And eventually, you know, you have to kind of get to parity with what the market is and, you know, and you pay to play and your, and your margins become, you know, absolute, right. Across yep. all your channels. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that's a pretty sound rationale, especially the product that he's selling. I mean, you look at brands like native deodorant, which you could only get online for a long time. And now they're in store. I mean, you can buy them at Walmart, I think now. So, um, yeah, I think that there are definitely, categories in in retail and cpg where you have to have a physical presence for your business to scale in a way that you can compete with some of the 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 incumbents in the space and i think we might be unique that we don't necessarily have to do that i mean an interesting example that and, and again they still have a retail component but they haven't necessarily relied on anyone else to get them there but there's another company in and around our space called yardbird that started you know several years before us uh, they were acquired by Best Buy in 2021, I think. But they they went heavy into their own retail footprint stores. And that was something that I'm super familiar with from our time at Tufton Needle. I mean, we had 10 retail stores when I left. And so we definitely kicked that idea around for Neighbor as well, because we think that there are some interesting things that we could do in retail once we have a catalog that is you know has enough breadth to it that we could fill out a physical space and, and be a, you know, point for people to go and check things out and, and generate enough leads. Yeah, or just have because, like a showroom within a showroom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would love to do something like that. It's just finding the right partner that's really enthusiastic about that. Right. And and so how important is bundling in, in products like these? I So what's interesting is I think bundling happens kind of just by nature of what people are buying. I mean, I can tell you that most of our basket sizes are three. Uh, and our most common thing purchases a sofa and two chairs. And so that, that just naturally happens. I think that what we have found too, uh, I underwrote the business at the beginning, you know, the early days financial models, we have someone now that does a much better job than I used to, uh, to never have repeat purchasers. Cause we're just like, listen, if you're going to spend $5,000 or $4,000 on an outdoor furniture setup, when are you going to need another one? probably not for five to seven years. I mean, what, what is going to be your, I guess, inflection point to say, Oh, I need more. You're either, you move to a new home, your style changed, 
or potentially you bought a second home. So those are like infrequent events for most people. Um, yeah, but yeah, interestingly, wife. yeah, that, that could be, I don't like this stuff anymore. <laughs> Hopefully our stuff is unique enough that it, it, you know, covers the spectrum of folks that have a, a nice, a nice, I would say design eye for furniture, but, um, we've seen like 15% of our customers come back. And so I think one of the questions that you, you know, raise, that's a really good one is maybe how do we help customers make that, that decision to bundle more things in their cart the first time? Because invariably, like, even if they are in our ecosystem as a customer, like they're probably still going to get retargeted with an ad and we're paying to reacquire them at some point. That's just the way that the internet is built. Um, So how could we help ourselves by like bringing some of those products a little bit more to the forefront of what they're looking to purchase early on. And, and I think that we're still learning about how important bundling is for us because um, we're learning more each day about what gets added to the basket as our assortment starts to grow, right? We just started selling fire tables a month and a half ago. We never had that before. And it's been shocking for us to see how frequently that has been purchased with someone's order. And so what about, I mean, this might sound stupid, but from a topic perspective, but, you know, I once upon a time invested in a, in a, a consumer, direct-to-consumer um, appliance company and learning about the ins and outs of just flat packing, yeah. you know, and like, like there's literally like sciences about that. What, what were your learnings around packaging and shipping? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was one of the things that we went into in the beginning is we wanted to flat pack everything. Chris obviously had an immense amount of experience working with FedEx and optimizing our rate card, shipping tough needle mattresses all around the US. And so our perspective was, if you think about your average outdoor sofa, right, it's fully assembled, it gets shipped on a less, you know, less than truckload, like freight delivery to the customer. Um, it's probably palletized. Sometimes it might not be. Um, and if that product is built overseas, that means it's being put on a shipping container, fully assembled and filling up a bunch of space. If it's not stackable or it doesn't have a way to be like Tetris together and totally optimize the space on a container. So from the very beginning, that was one of our kind of expectations was we need to be able to flat pack this stuff and ship it more effectively and more efficiently than the incumbents in the space. And so we we actually invested quite a bit of time, David, into building a modular system that we now have a patent on for the way that it's designed, where our system shares a front and back leg in the way that it's assembled. So to an end user, once their product is built, it looks like one contiguous piece of furniture. And how that's different than, I would say, traditional modular outdoor furniture is most of the time... Um, when you'll push two modules next to each other and you'll just see the two feet like touching each other. And we mm-hmm. felt like that was a pretty unrefined design because it's like, those are just two separate pieces of furniture bunched up next to each other. And so in, in doing all the research and the work, and I would say like really like nitpicking design process that we did when we were developing our first collection, it allowed us to come to a position where now we can ship five to six times the number of sofas on a container from Vietnam than a company that's typically, you know, building fully assembled furniture. And what that does is it brings our freight cost per product down. It brings our impact, you know, kind of environmentally down because we're fitting less, we're fitting more in a container than the average business. 
Um, and then once it gets to us, that allows us to ship things significantly more cost effectively to the end user via FedEx. And what's been also kind of unique, and I think this was maybe not an intention, but it was a happy accident, is that we we resonate in the urban core because now if someone wants a 93-inch long sofa, they don't need to receive a 93-inch long sofa. They can get six boxes that are all about six inches in height uh, and call it just quick rounding, like 30 by 30. So they can maneuver it up weird staircases. They can maneuver it through like you know small, tight, old school apartment brownstones in the New York's and Chicago's and San Francisco's of the world. Um, and for many people, I think they find it to be a little bit delightful to put the product together. Not everyone feels that way, but it doesn't take that long to assemble it. And it ends up being, you know, a, a much more effective way to get someone something to the end user. So, and you raised some capital, right? You raised we some did. Series A? We did. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I guess what it was called, but in total, um, we've raised less than $5 million. Uh, and it's come through friends and family and then one kind of institutional investor that is a, uh, they're a group out of LA called Strand Equity. And they were an offshoot of a family office, but they do a ton of work in brand. And they've just been really good partners and they're patient and they understand that, you know, this is not this like this is not going to happen overnight. Um, and I think they've had to be even more understanding about that and the way the world has kind of unfolded over the course of the last 12 months. And, and I think too, that the unique thing is, is like they have helped to level up the way that we think about some of the stuff that we're doing just by, by virtue of some of the other portfolio companies that they have, that they've helped to introduce us to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, certainly money is going to be a lot harder to make in the next, you know, yeah. it's been, it's been harder and it's going to continue to be harder. Um, which yeah. I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. No, I mean, I think what happens is that the businesses that are that are poised to weather the storm a little bit better will have a, a, a really nice benefit once we get through, you know, however long it is, whether it's 12, 18, right. 24 months. It's, it's hard to know. Um, but, you know, we, we came into it with a similar perspective to – the way tough to needle did things right. I mean, we were profitable in 2021 and, um, that was something that we were incredibly proud of. And so we, we didn't have our backs against the wall needing to raise capital, but I think in retrospect, we're very happy that we did. Um, the second half of 2022 was, was not great for most things in the retail and certainly not good for things in the e-commerce space, but we've weathered the storm and like are now, you know, already seeing some of the benefits of having gotten through a tough time and just the way that you learn to think about what you're doing and be thoughtful about the decisions that you're making and recognize that you don't have an, like an, you know, never ending pool of capital to go and call from when you need it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you like, uh, being a founder from being an executive? What's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the difference is, is you know, when I was, when I was leaving Tuft and Needle, um, I think this is fair to say. And before being acquired by Serta Simmons, you know, Pete was my boss. And so I was arguably like, you know, number two in the company and I had a ton of agency and we were able to make decisions quickly and, and move fast. And, you know, Pete gave me a ton of, I would say, flexibility and trying things and testing and failing. And so it felt like a, a really great environment to be in, right. You were rewarded for taking risk. Um, 
And some of that changed after we got acquired, understandably so, right? Now we're owned by a $3 billion-ish size business at the time that they bought us. And so decisions took longer and, and risk-taking, you had to be a little bit more thoughtful and you know, look at what happened. They went bankrupt. So I think they also were in a position where they had to be a little bit more protective than what they were used to doing. And so to me, the, the fun part of what it was to be an executive at the Tufted Needle started to just change a little bit. And, and I, I, that's where I think I had this like natural internal feeling like I want to get back to a place where decisions are being made quickly and you're, you're, you know, you're impacting what's going on and affecting change quickly and, and getting to see kind of the benefit of the, of the work that you're putting in at a faster clip rate. Um, and, and I also, you know, I worked a lot at Tuft & Needle. And so I used to kind of say to my wife, like, I didn't feel physically or mentally present at home when I was at home. And we had two young kids at the time. Who just <laughs> You do that too? <laughs> we still, yeah, we still have to. Yeah. But at the time I, I say we had to, because we had just given birth to our second child. Well, not we, my wife did. Um, she had just given birth to our second daughter, right, right after TNN sold. And I was like, I'm not sure if this is kind of the, the mode that I want to be in, in like these rich years of their life when you're just, you know, you're making so many core memories. And so, um, I think maybe naively. So I thought going off and doing something entrepreneurial, I might have a little bit more control over my time. And I definitely have more control over my time, but I could have never underwritten the emotional roller coaster of doing something like this. I think like the challenge is all, you know, having to clean up for lack of a better term shit very quickly. If something blows up like that, that stuff was easy to predict because a JT and day, had told me enough about that. And, and I had heard enough horror stories about the early days of tucked and needle. Um, that stuff was not, I would say a surprise. The biggest surprise is just how taxing this can be mentally and how often you're thinking about it. I mean, it is on my mind 24 seven. And so I've had to be pretty intentional over the course of the last 12 months to, to build some boundaries to protect my time. Because I think if you're thinking about it constantly, you're not doing the best job that you can because you're, you're never really allowing yourself to, to take a break and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you need your time to get unplugged from the matrix. Yep. So, yeah. so I like that. T- t- I didn't. I didn't adequately answer your question. I do like it. I would have kicked myself in the ass every day if I didn't try this. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been very stressful. Uh, but I think if you have the desire to do something entrepreneurial, you have to scratch that itch at some point. Otherwise you'll always wonder, well, what if? And so I don't know how this is all going to, you know, what, what the end game for neighbor looks like. I certainly, we have our goals and we have our eye on where we want to go. Uh, but you know, there are roadblocks along the way that sometimes are outside of your control, right? I mean, we were lucky enough to start the company in the middle of a, I would say once in a generation, maybe even less than that pandemic that, that had like very weird impacts on the way people spent their money. And so, you know, to our benefit, most people were at home and they were focused on their home. So demand was through the roof, but immediately after that ended, we're stepping into, I would say pretty uncertain economic territory with a, a lot of low consumer confidence right now 
And the the quickest increasing interest rate environment that I would say we've seen in the last 20 years. So um, I always say we have nothing but tainted data. I don't know what normal would look like for neighbor. And that makes it kind of hard to plan and think about how we get from point A to point B in the most effective way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you feel like, imagine if you had an investor hat on and you approached, you know, or somebody who was you approached you to pitch neighbor and the pitch was, well, we do this at, we did this at Tuft and Needle. Now we're doing the exact same thing with outdoor furniture. Would you say that that is an adequate like transition or do you think that totally cheapens what you're doing? Um, I never positioned it that way, but people that we talked to early on that yeah. were investors viewed it that way. Yeah. Um, That's what I'm and saying. they didn't, it's easy, yeah, it's, it's an easy thing to underwrite, but to me, like, I don't, I, I for me, like it, it would just seem like a totally different business. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think that it's, they underwrite it that way and, and maybe rightly so, because like a lot of the challenges of finding the right team are kind of resolved. I mean, mm-hmm. we are lucky that there, that we have, you know, we had a employee base down the street from us when we started neighbor of people that we knew and that we loved working with and that we had, mm-hmm. you know, very, I would say a high degree of confidence in that if we ever had the opportunity to hire some of them, that we would do that. So, yeah. um, I think that one, one investor used this term to me early on, and this was like before we had even raised a penny of capital, like, oh, you guys are just doing a lift out. And I was like, I've never heard that before. And he's like, yeah, you're lifting a team out of an existing business and you're going and starting something new. So I think that it's, it's fair for some people to underwrite it like that. I would say that if I'm an investor now in today's environment, I would want to do more due diligence than that. Because, you know, that that was probably okay five or six years ago when everything was up and to the right. But now it's like, okay, how how is your business model going to be similar and or different from that original business? And why? Why why does it need to change? Um, And then what are your your expectations? Because I think it's very easy, and we even fall into this fallacy sometimes here, is like to say, well, this is what we were doing at TNN in year three. Why aren't we doing that here at Neighbor? And it's like, right. that was a totally different time, right? That was 2015, 2016. Like yeah. it was the glory days of our economy. had a different balance sheet. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's, I, I don't take issue. I, I don't know if you were maybe positioning it this way, but like I wouldn't take issue with an investor underwriting it that way. It doesn't cheapen it to me in my eyes. But if I was in their shoes, I would say maybe do a little bit more due diligence because there are things that are certainly similar about what we're doing here at Neighbor, you know, from our time at TNN, but there are things that are very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, I, I can't, I I see it a lot. Um, I see it a lot with, you know, repeat successful, either founders or operators, that go out and do something, you know, the, the underwriting gets very concise and a lot of credits given, you know, which it should yeah. be, it should be given, but you know, there's a lot of factors that go into success other than the people <laughs> like, for sure, you know? Um, and the only difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is if you get successful or not. Right. And like, yeah. oftentimes there's yeah. a lot of successful people who fail, you know, because the yep. timing's right, <laughs> you know, and, yep. or, you know, the business model's not there, the funding's not there or whatever. Um, but, 
That's awesome. I mean, you, you, you could, you could even, you could even drill into that, David, and say what defines success. <laughs> so it's, it's by what measuring stick you're measuring success as well. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, awesome. Well, I've got a couple can questions for you, Nick. Uh, what's cool. your favorite book? Say that again. I, you, you broke up there. I didn't hear you. Sorry. What, what's your favorite book? Um, I mean, I, this, this may be like a, a simple answer. So I'm, I'm going to give two, I'm going to give two. I, I have just always loved since I read it the first time shoe dog. I think it's a great book. Like I, there it's, it's pretty candid in ways about the way that I think they probably operated culturally. And maybe we did early on where it's just like, there's always a fire to put out. And I think that sometimes, um, the way that entrepreneurship is painted today can be a little bit of a fantasy. Like I used to listen to how I built this a lot and I think it's a good podcast, but sometimes it like oversimplifies how difficult it is to try to start a business. And mm-hmm. I liked shoe dog because there were elements of it that I thought were pretty, probably quite true to what that experience was. Um, so I would say from like a, you know, reading stories about business that hopefully still provide some personality to it. Cause I'm not a huge fan of like, here are your 12 steps of success books. Mm-hmm. I just don't find a lot of enjoyment reading that. But one that I would say that I've read a few times over is Siddhartha by Herman Hess. And it's just a, I, I would say it's a, I mean, it's, it's rooted in like the, the story of Buddhism, but it teaches you a little bit about being stoic and weathering storms and, and recognizing that many things aren't within your own control. And the one, the things that are within your control, you should try to position them in a way that make you feel most comfortable. And what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Um, well, so I'm a, I'm a pretty firm believer in, uh, building a good culture wherever you're working. And I had a professor that used to have this saying, because I think that it's especially in the last 10 to 15 years, there has just been so many books that come out about culture and designing culture. And like, you know, you, you could read a book that has 500 pages about how you build culture. And his was like a, I don't know, you know, 15 word sentence. And it was like, culture is about how you talk to and how you talk about people. And I think it's incredibly true. I mean, it is, it is such a concise statement, but one that is really important. And, and for me, um, I think operating a business and leading people, like looking at it through that lens, like, how are you going to talk to the people that matter to you that are helping you push your, you know, collective goal together. But then, you know, those folks that are in a room and listen to you talk to other people, whether it's your custom talk about your, you know, other folks, whether it's your customers or your vendors, um, you end up painting culture in the way that you talk about those folks as well. And so that's always one that I just find myself like regurgitating to people constantly. And so for me that, you know, it doesn't have anything to do about economics or being thoughtful about your PL or how you acquire a customer. It's, it's how you build that internal tool in a simple way that is your team that ends up being the mechanism that really goes out and achieves what you're trying to do. That's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming. This was fun. We'll have to do this again. Yeah, it was fun, man. Yeah, it was great. Sorry it wasn't in person, but hey, I think we still got it done. Absolutely. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. We drop an episode every week, so please like it. Tell a friend. If you want some really nice furniture at an economical cost, but just not garbage, but you know, not paying restoration hardware prices, go to Neighbor. What's the website? Where do they get get involved? Uh, look at your stuff. Highneighbor.com. 
highneighbor.com. Couldn't afford neighbor.com. Nope. It was already taken by a, uh, what I call basically like Airbnb for storage. <sighs> Bummer. Bummer. It's all Have good. Tim try to get that for you. Yeah. Tim. Oh, has Tim been on here too? Dude, I've like your whole friend group has been on my podcast. Yeah, Tim's great. I, I like just texted with Tim yesterday for the first time in a few months and I miss Tim. He's a great guy too. Yeah, I think he's coming to my house out here um, in a little bit. But anyway, cool. Thank you so much for coming in. And once again, we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.